and welcome to another episode of the Turn Up For What podcast talking your Houston Texans straight from the Great British Isles. It's episode 131 and we're back talk a bit of schedule, wrap up a little bit of the draft and just see where this team is kind of heading as the off-season and everybody seems high on the draft still a little bit but we'll give these guys time to settle in but joining me as a good friend of mine probably the longest tenure guest by some considerable distance now do the high run clark if you've heard the uh the intro on his thursday slot um but uh, mr brandon case how are you doing doing good man thanks for having me again and shout out to figgy for that intro that's one of the coolest things that i've had done for me so I greatly appreciate that intro, and I'm glad that you. I'm glad that you caught that all the way from uh, across the world. I'm glad you caught that. Yeah, trying and dip in and out of everything just to get a feel for what people are saying and doing in most weeks to see a sense check your own opinion at times, and and then just kind of get a feel for some of the callers and some of the you know some of the stuff like that as well. The text line, I'll let you kind of get a, a feel for what's going on out there. Um, rookie mini camp. Um, reports, your thoughts, just happened this weekend, a couple of guys for tryouts, nobody's signed so far that we know about, but um, from the tryout guys, but undrafted free agent, there's only one name we hadn't seen, um, an extra defensive lineman, which kind of shows their, their thoughts of guys like Blacklock and things are on notice, I think. But yeah, what did you think of the the rookie mini camp from what you heard? I didn't hear you ask any questions at the, uh, at the with the two availabilities. But. Yeah, I wasn't there. I was at, I had to host a show with uh, with John Lopez, I was in for Landry Locker. So I was at the studio listening just like everybody else. Um, and, you know, I, I thought it was just, you know, pretty much what you would figure a mini camp would be sort of generic comments about, you know, just kind of getting implemented, taking things one day at a time. I was going over Jalen Petrie sound, uh, his media availability, and it was just him trying to stay even killed and not make too much. I, what I sense from the last couple of weeks, and this is going back even before minicamp to to Nick Casario at the golf course for the charity event that they did last week, just kind of wanting to calm down the hype a little bit about all the draft picks, which I mean, I, I don't feel that there's a need to temper the excitement. People are excited for good reason. There's new players, young players. This is what fans I think have been wanting and longing for even since last year. They finally got it. So I think it's more reflective of that than, you know, overhype, but it seems like to be a real deliberate and concerted effort to temper the excitement and just sort of make things a little bit more even keel. That's, uh, you know, if you look at Nick Casario's comments about, you know, how the expectations have been way out of control and the way that the rookies talk, but I did find it interesting, the rookies that they decided to, to make available to the media being Jalen Petrie. They clearly want Jalen Petrie to be one of the rookie spokesmen, if you will. That's somebody that I think they're going to put out there a lot for a rookie. Um, and, and and Christian Harris was the one that I felt like had been maybe discussed the least. I don't know if I could, if I could say that for sure. I hadn't necessarily done the, the math or research, but it feels like Christian Harris was one of the, of the rookies that you could reasonably expect to make an impact. He's probably one that we've discussed the the least in terms of uh, just also the importance of what his role might be if he turns out to be a good player. I have no idea if he's going to be like how his college game is going to translate to the pro game. He looks like a really athletic, uh, heady linebacker who who Lovey Smith clearly likes, um, and I trust Lovey Smith's opinion at the very least on linebackers. Right? If there's if there's nothing else. But uh, but I found that interesting as well. Um, the fact that he's also going to be the last rookie to sign, I believe. Mm. I believe that's correct. That he'll be the last yeah, rookie yeah. to sign because he's in sort of that sweet spot. Texans Cap on Twitter was talking about this a little bit or mentioned this that he's sort of in that sweet spot as a third rounder. Where and not to get into minutia of it, but there's like a percentage of the guaranteed salary. That they're that they could be negotiating, and this by the time this comes out, I'm sure they will have probably even figured that out, and they'll have all of their rookie sign, all of their drafted rookie sign for sure. Um, but that was my that was sort of my reaction just from people watching the oh well the main takeaway. I'm sorry, I overlooked one thing. the The main takeaway from minicamp, especially me not being there physically, like I said, I was in studio at the time, so I'm following on Twitter trying to get a sense. It's John Mechie 
uh, John Mechie not having it on a knee brace. I thought that was interesting. And the feeling, it seems, that he's going to be available or ready to play sooner rather than later. I don't know exactly when that is, but they don't seem they seem more optimistic than pessimistic about how much he'll play or whether I should say whether he'll play in 2022. I'm really interested. Like if there, if there is one player that I'm excited about on the offensive end, it's John Mechie. Uh, and, and not because I think he'll be great or I'm projecting that he'll be great. It's more of a hope thing and, and, and a projection thing of, Hey, this guy's taping college looks really, really good. He doesn't stand out physically in any kind of way, speed, size, and strength. But he, he is kind of a badass. Like, he's he's a physical guy for a guy who's not very big. Like, he'll deliver hits. He'll, you know, kind of finish his plays. Um, love how physical he is at, you know, at the start of a route when he gets jammed on the start of his route. Like, I, I think he's – I think there's some good bones there uh, if he's healthy and if the game translates. So, seeing him not wearing a knee brace and hearing them – from, from the parts that I, that I did here seemed like they were optimistic about when he might play or that he might play, I should say, uh, were things that, that really stood out to me, you know, beyond that, it's just sort of the, the, the housekeeping things of seeing guys get signed and, and taking a look at some of the, trying to do some research, at least on some of their undrafted free agents and kind of get a feel for what this new blood is going to look like, man. Yeah, that's right. I think I mean the the right to temper the expectation. I think in terms of what's fair and what's not fair on these players, because you think like these guys have got to come in and like all going well, these guys will be real contributors for you in twenty twenty three. You know, and you know, going exceedingly well, they'll contribute in twenty two. Anything in twenty one, I wrote an article last week. It's just a bonus. I think you've got to twenty two. You got to, sorry. It's just I've got to be a bonus and treated as such, because you know they're all young guys, um, but they've all been picked from big schools and big programs for a reason, I think, because they wanted guys that had less of a transition. There was less room for error. They need bodies and they need guys to start quick. And I thought the Christian Harris comment was funny when he, he said something about, are you prepared for this? I'm paraphrasing. He just went, oh, no offence, but I'm coming from Bama. So, you know, <laughs> it's almost to say, like, this shit's bigger than this or almost on par in terms of, you know, like the off-field, like the on-field experience, the game days. The, the, the SEC kids always have to experience the humbling of the NFL. Uh, my guy, my colleague here, Seth Payne, was mentioning it earlier this morning, how Leonard Fournette, you know, coming out of LSU, was a badass at LSU in the SEC and said something similar as a rookie, like, oh, is, you know, it's not that fast. It's not that different. And then, you know, he's out there running that. And that's another thing. They're out there running around in T-shirts and shorts. He has no idea what he what he's talking about. Like, and and maybe maybe he's gonna be the best ever. Maybe it is gonna be easy, but he doesn't know it one way or the other just yet. And he will find out. And I suspect he, he uh, he'll get his welcome to the NFL moment at some point. Yeah, they asked that to Petrie as well, and he kind of said, "Nah, not really. It's not hit me yet." I think was an interesting right. comment. Yep, yep. These guys, I think Petrie's out there because he's probably going to say the least, but answer the question in a way that kind of gets some. You know, it felt like he was a bit more savvy with how he answered the questions. You obviously yeah. saw when Stingley and stuff was in front of the media, a little bit more muted, he kind of deferred to Kenyon Green a touch. But you were at those original conferences, Brandon. And when you were sitting looking at those two first rounders, did they epitomise what you wanted in everything in the first round or what you expected, that confidence, you know, the aura, did you feel it in the room? And my question to you is, somebody said to me in this process, and it stuck with me, said there's no doubt that Stingley has the ability to be a pro. How much does he want it? And you can kind of get a feel for that. And uh, but what did you, what was the impression of just particularly the the top two guys? Because you know we need to hit more than any of these guys in, in theory. To, you know to to be major payoff role players on this team. Yeah. So let's start with Stingley because I think this is interesting from a personality standpoint when you talk about him because the personality and the flashing like the personality is just not there. You know there was some whispers leading up to the draft or at least I'd seen some of this, that he didn't have like the scouts or teams were worried that he didn't have the alpha personality. He didn't have sort of this, you know, there's there's this bit of a cliche alpha element to especially football that, you know, and especially when you're a great player that you're expected to have, you know, maybe I don't know if it's just arrogance, but certainly sort of 
you know, just this alpha personality is not something that that he really has. He seems shy and soft spoken or or maybe if soft spoken is not the right word, shy and not so and just doesn't have a lot of things to say. And, and I think that's going to be part of him. I don't think the guy lacks for confidence, though. You know, I don't, I don't think the shyness translates to timid or not confident. I think he's supremely confident and obviously supremely talented where he wouldn't be here in this position. And, and I would just go back to how productive he was in 2019 as a freshman, as a kid. And I've said this before. I think from a corner, just cornerback perspective, isolated him as a cornerback. He is essentially the Trevor Lawrence of cornerbacks. That's how that that's, that is how people have talked about him. I'm not saying that he's going to be that he's going to have the equal career, but just as a prospect, this is a guy that has been talked about as the best cornerback in any draft class since he became a college player. So would have been the best as a freshman, would have been the best last or in 2020 and last year, so on and so forth. So, so I, I, I'm not so much worried about the personality element, but I do think it'll be interesting that the top pick and perhaps we don't know, we'll see, right? But perhaps their best rookie, certainly their top selected rookie, will be the one probably with the least personality. Like if and if I had to go down and and, and rank them, I'm trying to think, I didn't, I wasn't on the Christian Harris, so I have not met Christian Harris. I think is the only rookie that I haven't talked to at all. So I don't really have a great sense for his personality. But out of all of them, I feel like this guy is going to have the least amount of personality and the least amount of things to say but has the potential to be, obviously, uh, as a top pick, you know, your very best player of them all. So I, f- I find that interesting. Kenyon Green is the opposite. Of, uh, basically, as someone who he's not going to make a lot of flash plays unless unless you scour highlights and watch film for pancakes. Right. You, you, you know, you want to you want to count up how many pancakes do, does Kenyon Green get in his rookie year and his second year. And, you know, and, and obviously following his. Uh, watching his film and following his grades on pro football focus. Like, you know, is he winning, um, you know, is, is he winning at his position basically? Uh, but, but it won't be a highlight type of thing. It's not going to be something that'll wow you, but when he does speak and when he is in front of people, it's, and it's not to say to, to overplay the personality, just to say that it's not, he's not a shy guy. He's not uh soft-spoken, not somebody that's going to have a, tr- a trouble coming up with words. So, I think from a personality standpoint, Kenyon Green is going to be one that's going to stand out a lot more. Uh, Damian Pierce is probably has the most personality, and I'll be interested to see how often they put him in front of a microphone uh, because, <laughs> bless his heart, as innocent as, as I think it is, the, 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 the guy might say anything, it seems like. Um, but as far as the top two picks, though, I, I think, it, again, it's interesting that it's – different types of personalities, but both um, guys that I, that I figure will be starters and guys that will be available to us. Here's, and this is the point I'm trying to make about the younger, these guys are going to play immediately, right? Yeah. So there are guys that are going to be available to us, not just available to us, but guys that we will want to talk to immediately, you know, you know, as you know, throughout the week and obviously on game days. So we'll get to see a lot more of it. And, you know, it'll be interesting to follow how how it evolves because they're obviously still really, really young guys. First times as pros. So, you know, let's see if that let's see if that changes a little bit as time goes on. Yeah, no, I think so. And they're going to get thrown into the fire very quickly. Um, Green will maybe have a little bit more, you know, kind of comfort in the fact he can slide in next to potentially two vets if he is on the assuming he starts day one left hand side. But I think the point is both Kenyon Green and Stingley are direct replacements for Lonnie Johnson and Max Sharpen in many ways, and that's that's you know only a couple couple of draft classes ago, which has, has yielded no fruit for this team. So the baseline talent's low. These guys are the first kind of building blocks on that kind of journey to try and build up a talent level that's composite with the league. That's going to kind of you know bring you in line with with the the real NFL scale. Because I think when the schedule comes out, you know that's always a good indicator because it's a matchup league and you have to then go from evaluating these guys in a vacuum where there's training camp right through to preseason to actually 
when the real stuff starts, that's when these guys are going to perform and it'll take time and I think they'll have limited hiding place. And I suppose a reason why particularly Stingley will have limited hiding place, Brandon, is because they didn't sign any edge guys. Now, look, if you're fi looking to fill a need in the draft, there's going to be a very specific outcome that year, I think that's for sure. Uh, but they've picked up Jerry Hughes and Mario Addison and the day after the draft was uh, Rashad Green. Um, now, there's a reason why all these guys are available at this stage. Rashad Green, you know, Seattle not got a great pass rush, but was let go. No more, apart from Ed Oliver, did anybody play more snaps on that Buffalo defensive front than Jerry Hughes, but he had seven tackles and two and a half sacks last year. But he's going to play about 50% of the snaps. That's what he played about last year in Buffalo, albeit a similar system. You hope the transfer from that system from Leslie Fraser over to this is smooth. But that being said, how much does the lack of edge rush concern you? And I think people are quick to overhype because anything Casario does, people are ready to get the banners out, um, shoot off some pyrotechnics and all that kind of stuff. Um, we'll, we'll see. But I, I just don't think those guys are enough to cover up when you know, you're talking about the true elite NFL level pass rush that you need to get through games and it's not going to affect the young corners that I don't think signing those three guys solves your problems. It maybe helps a little, but it certainly doesn't solve it. Yeah, I, I would say the last the last part that you just said is the best way to describe it, that it helps a little and solves really nothing. I was trying to think through this on my drive into the studio this morning of like, and, and you kind of laid it out here of the, the snap count, like the amount of the snap percentage for Jerry Hughes playing about half of the snaps probably was what he's going to play. But just trying to think of what is that rotation even going to look like of the edge guys. And honestly, if these are even for sure going to be the edge guys, I was doing this exercise last week too. Like I think all of those guys are going to make the team, the Jerry Hughes, Mario Addison and Rasheen Green. Like I'm pretty sure all those guys are going to be on the team. But I guess I don't know that for sure. Like, think about it like this. Last year, when they traded Bernardrick McKinney for Shaq Lawson, in the moment, I thought, well, that's not great, but Shaq Lawson's probably going to end up being the best pass rusher on this team. And my man didn't <clears throat> even make it through training camp. <laughs> yeah. You know, um, and, 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 and think about this. On the 53-man, the defensive lineman that they kept on the 53-man the man roster through training camp now, you, you, this will stand out because a lot of these guys didn't last very long on the team. Charles Aminahue, Whitney Merciless, all right, with Jonathan Grenard and Jordan Jenkins, I think is primarily those three as your edge guys. Not great. Not great, right? Not great. Inside. Pretty sure it was, I'm going off memory here, Malik Collins, Roy Lopez, Ross Blacklock, and maybe Vincent Taylor. Yeah, totally. Yeah, he got injured like week one or week yeah, two. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so I think that's what it looked like on the inside. So not, not great. I think it. I, I feel a little bit better about it now, but again, I don't know how much of that is just the wanting to be optimistic about the things that Nick Casario does. Like, I... I'm I'm waiting to see on this. I'm not like super excited, like super optimistic about what they're going to have on, uh, from a pass rush standpoint. And I think you make a really good point about what kind of effect that could have on a young defensive back group, you know, uh, with, between Stingley and Petrie guys that are going to have to play right away or that I would expect to play right away. And, you know, look, I, I got the sense before the draft that, at defensive line, they cared more about depth than necessarily like there being one particular guy who's great or one or two yeah. particular guys who are great because Lovey Smith does like to rotate his defensive linemen in and out. And so I feel like they, I, I believe that they think if they can get good, solid rotational guys in there, and they're not necessarily be like one guy. Or maybe Jonathan Grenard's healthy and, and is able to take that step, and maybe he's that guy. But aside from that, they just want solid guys that they can rotate in and out, and they don't expect like an enormous amount of production from any one particular of them. They just want to feel comfortable with the depth that they have there. And I don't know if that was necessarily the case when you go back and listen to who I just named off as their yeah. guys on the 53-man. And obviously, they got rid of those guys, you know, a minute 
and and Whitney Merciless, Whitney Merciless out of the league now, retired, you know, uh, ha- had a foot out halfway out the door anyway last year. So, like, they're better there, but they're not a lot better there. I also don't feel like they were trying to hit a home run either. Well, they clearly weren't, right? They they showed that to you through their actions in the draft, and then when they went and signed productive but marginal veterans to to fill those roles. So, I mean, I'm really interested to see how how things play out there at training camp and what the depth actually looks like, who actually makes the team and, uh, you know, and, and then again, what the what that depth looks like. You're thinking your edge guys are, you know, let's call it Jonathan Grenard, and then it's going to be some combination, I'm thinking, as at least as of right now, of uh, of Rasheem Green, yep. Jerry Hughes, and Mario Addison, and then your inside guys. And so, what is where does that leave Jordan Jenkins in sort of this whole equation? Does he beat one of those guys out? Um, do they go heavy on the outside guys because Rasheem Green can play a little bit inside, and do they go light on the inside guys and just keep Malik Collins? Uh, Roy Lopez, they just drafted Thomas Booker, who I'm really interested just to see what he looks like when when football is actually played. And so now you get, you're talking about three inside guys there and Ross Blacklock, you know, another one. How like, how does all of this uh, uh, play out? Does it, is Ross Blacklock, and I think you were kind of alluding to this earlier in the podcast, like, is he on notice? Is he? I think he is. I think he might be the old man out. I, don't, I wouldn't be surprised if he doesn't make the roster this year. Here we go. There, that's what I'm getting at. There yeah, you go. Yeah. Because has he has he had a standout game? Has he had a standout play? Even the answer is no. And if you think where Lonnie Johnson was at this point, now he's no longer here. He at least had that, and Ross hasn't even had that. So if you think the amount of guys that are signing internally up that line is different, I think the fact that Jerry Hughes has had two years worth of money guaranteed in the deal we hear yep. pushing thirty six by the time that contract elapsed. Fair enough, man. Culture builder. You know, development. These young guys will need it. You'll need to develop the guys we draft next year, hopefully a rusher as well, one of those top two picks. But interested, I think there's, there's going to be a lot in the mix there as we get through um, a, a signing that was or a, or a departure from the front office. We'll get through this quickly, Brandon, before we get on the schedule. But the the, the departure of Mark, Matt Bazerkin came from the Jets. He was a Brian Gain hire. He then follows Brian Gain a couple of years laterally. What do you think that says about Casario, the front office? Because Casario promoted them. He's not necessarily gone for a title or a huge jump in responsibilities, etc. In fact, you could almost say it's, it's a bit more blurred going to... Buffalo, but he wanted to make the move. Okay, fair enough. Perhaps maybe he's got some more roots in the, the East Coast. But yeah, I thought it was interesting. We've not seen a huge amount. That's all been kept reasonably quiet. But Bazargan leaves to go and join Gain in Buffalo. And Caceres going to need to hire and develop that front office, I think, if he wants to take strides forward and not do it all himself, which is certainly what it appears from from the outside. Yeah, so I think this is a little interesting because this was characterized as a promotion last year with Matt Bazigan and James Lippert. I didn't really view it as a promotion. I just thought that they're, that they were reassigned or that their titles were renamed. And I could, I could be wrong about this. I haven't talked to anybody over there in depth about this, about this part, but when I heard it, like, let's go back. They were named assistant directors of player personnel. Well, Matt Bazigan had been the director of player personnel, you know, and it's, so they went from, they were just renamed. Like James Lipford was the director of college scouting and Matt Bazigan was the director of player personnel. And then they were named assistant directors of player personnel. So like, if not a demotion, that certainly to me wasn't a promotion. To me, like last last year, I didn't I never viewed it that way. I saw that it was characterized that way in different places. Um, I, I never did and never saw it that way. So and I, I point all that out because it sounds like a little bit of minutia and semantics, but I do think it matters in the sense of going back to how you laid it out. Uh, Matt Bazergan comes here as a Brian Gain guy. They'd worked one year together, I think, with the Jets. So they had they had like one year crossover with the Jets. I think they knew each other beyond that. but. I had the one year together with the Jets and he was a, a, a Brian Gain guy, right? Which means 
He survived until now. He had survived three general managers and an interim, right? Brian Gaines. And they they interviewed for him from the GM, didn't they? Yeah, there you go. I didn't didn't think about that. And he interviewed for the GM position, which went to the person who ultimately sort of reassigned him and reading it. Like, I don't know. That ain't no promotion to me. Maybe it's not a demotion, but going from director of player personnel to jointly being named assistant director of player personnel did not sound like a promotion to me. Uh, and, and he was clearly looking for one, right? If he, if he interviewed for the job, right. For the GM job had been there a few years uh, working under the previous GM. And again, had survived or a, at least now has worked under three general <laughs> managers. Now, part of that is because of the Texans own calamity because they've had so many general managers in such a short period of time. He's only been here since yeah. 2018, right? Uh, but, <laughs> it feels but, like a lifetime. Right. But from a personal standpoint, like if you're if you're working at a place for four years and, you know, you've got some ambition or you feel like you're pretty good at your job or that you deserve a, uh, I don't know, know what he was paid, but if you feel like you deserve a, a promotion or some type of elevation in stature there and you're not getting it and maybe even view the reassignment or recharacterization uh, of your title the previous year as, as a possible demotion? Well, well you know, what, where, where are you looking? Are you looking around? And so it should not surprise anybody. He goes to Buffalo um, and, and goes to work with at least, you know, Brandon Bean were, uh, runs the show over there, but he's just going there at least to work with Brian Gain, I, I imagine in some kind of capacity. So I don't, I don't know if it says a, a, a ton. I don't think it do you know, I viewed it as if he wants to be a GM, where is he more likely going to be hired from? Is it going to be where the GM's overarching, your name and your title aren't on the website, people in the background are take particularly or, or, or have been chosen to be taken at the limelight, or are you going to go to an organisation which is going to be challenging for Super Bowls for the next three to five years, who are going to, all the draft picks will look good because you've got a franchise quarterback in-house, and you're not going to be overshadowed by the person who wants to do, sing it all, and, and write it all, and play every instrument on the record, and that's what Casario does. So I kind of read it as it might be a better job for him to take that next step rather than being here, because when you know when it's called Camp Casario, there's a reason for that, and it's because it's the way he's going to run it all by you know all by himself and pre- predominantly uh, be the voice of the team. So it was almost to get out the shadow and be in more of a not necessarily a flatter organization, but somewhere I think he probably thinks he's got a chance to get promoted. And fair play to him. I mean, that's the thing you'll never know what these guys do. I don't know what he was responsible for. I know he was here in the downfall, um, but James Lipford's a New England guy, so he'll be New England connection ties be number two and you never know if you listen to Thomas Dimitrov's interview uh, with him on that podcast that he's done with Casario very very close so you know maybe he's a guy that they'll look to bring in and it's a but who knows on that front because it's all it's all very murky and particularly Houston and perhaps a reason why Mr. Bazargan's left is because to get out of that but yeah. in the next sort of 15 minutes Brandon we're on the clock the day uh, a yep, little yep. bit I've got some commitments today the schedule um my first reaction was, if you well, first reaction was, what of a hell of a time to have a buy because only only in Hurricane Ike did they have a, a, a an exchange buy to week two. Previously, week seven in a sixteen game schedule was the earliest buy, which I think was two thousand and eight or ten in that region, and uh, and now within a seventeen game schedule, you've got the the buy in week six. But not only that, you've got to play the Chargers. You've got to play. Russell Wilson's first main maiden voyage at Mile High, and uh, and you've also got to play the Colts week one. So you got probably got three of the top uh, top sort of five or six AFC contenders in there, and an early buy. So not the the kindest of starts from the scheduling gods, shall we say? Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned that it's three of the top AFC contenders. I I hadn't actually thought of it that way. I, I'm not necessarily disagreeing with you because uh, I do think that that's an interesting way to look at it. I kind of more looked at it from a matchup standpoint. And just to say this, uh, first of all, I, I don't really care how hard the schedule is or how grueling it is. Like that, the fact I did, it did stand out to me that they played five games, that they'll play five games and have a bye week. All right. Like it stood out, obviously, uh, but it didn't, it didn't bother me that they're going to have to play 12 straight games. It's going to be a, a much newer team. And, and, you know, I, I think that we've acknowledged, even though I'm somebody who wants to watch competitive football, I'm not here saying 
go out there and try to lose every game and get the higher draft pick and have no integrity about the product that you put out there. But I do think we all understand and acknowledge this is sort of a wasteland that that 2022 is sort of a, you know, you're still in that experimental phase and not really expecting to do much. And so from a, from a team competitive standpoint, it did not really matter to me much what the schedule looked like, especially kind of already knowing what the players or I'm sorry, what the, who the teams were going to be. But I did want to know that. I just wanted to know the order uh, just out of, uh, you know, from a fan, you know, a fan of the game and, you know, maybe planning road trips or where I might want to go and that sort of thing. Right. But to the part about the first, uh, you know, section of the schedule or the first five games before the bye week, there were a couple of things that I was looking out for uh, and, and they're like really sort of specific or, and so I'll start with the, the first five games. I thought more than anything, and I know Chicago's defense and Denver's defense are not necessarily as good as they were maybe a year or two ago. Um, and especially like, even if you look at them last year, they, th- those weren't great defenses, but Indianapolis, Denver, Chicago, and the, the Chargers, I think, will have a good defense. So just put that out there. Those are four teams that I would expect normally to have a good defense. Like, you know, you know what I mean? If that, if that makes sense, like going into it. So I'm like, oh, what a cool start to the season, kind of like test for Davis Mills, for Pep Hamilton, for a new Texans offense. This should, should look new both from a schematic standpoint and from a personnel standpoint, right? Uh, the changes in the offensive line, a couple of the draft picks. Don't know how soon Mechie will play, but, you know, you got Damian Pierce. So, like, the offense is going to look different. That's going to be one thing specific that we're looking at. I think going up against Indianapolis to start your season, that's a great test for your offense. A great, uh, a, a, a great way to me to sort of amateur evaluate and maybe too early reactionary evaluate what your offense looks like. Right. And we'll do that in the preseason too, obviously, but then you do it again with Denver. And again, Denver's defense, maybe I'm not sure if it's going to be as good as it was, I say a couple of years ago, but you know, that's going to be interesting enough with the Russell Wilson thing. Right. Like, so, you know, so put a, put a plug in that, you know, your first road game, Russell, Russell Wilson's first home game in Denver, which you mentioned, um, that story will write itself. Chicago, okay, normally has a good defense. Not sure they're going to have a great defense this year, but this game stands out to me. First of all, I'm glad that the game is in Chicago before it gets too cold. It's in September. That's great. I think that's a good thing for the Texans. But also, think about this. It is, and I'm looking just to make sure again, it is the only game other than the obvious one, right? You play Jacksonville twice a year, right? That's a division opponent. So other than that obvious one, it's the only one where Davis Mills will have a head-to-head, presumably if Justin Fields is playing in that game. It's the only one we'll have a head-to-head with a quarterback from his draft class, you know, unless something, you know, crazy happens between now and then. And one of those guys from last year ends up on one of these other teams, right? Like, we're pretty sure that that's going to be the only, uh, the only matchup. And I think it's interesting comparing where Justin Fields was last year from a projection standpoint and where Davis Mills was last year from a projection standpoint to where they are now, right? The Bears went out of their way to trade up to go get him and paired him with a offensive coach who didn't seem to really know what to do with him, was kind of lame duck. Last year was really weird and unproductive for Justin Fields and the Chicago Bears at large. You can make the same argument about the Texans because they ended up firing their offensive coordinator, firing their head coach, but feel a lot better about Davis Mills though, right? Maybe he even performed in spite, in spite of some things. Um, and maybe some of what helped him is what's still there in Pep Hamilton and elevating him as the offensive coordinator. I'm not saying it's going to be perfect, but the perception of these guys, I feel like has changed a little bit, quite a bit over the past year. And so I think that'll be an interesting sort of game within a game story, within a story. And obviously the Chargers are fascinated because of Justin Herbert and, you know, they just uh, they they actually traded for Khalil Mack, right? So yeah, yeah. Um, so you got both. Well, I see you got Bosa Mack. Yeah. So and you got Chubb and Gregory, and then you got Buckner and Ngakwe week one. So I think like you'll know very very quickly yep. Yep. where probably 
where you've laid the most kind of wood, if you like, in terms of Titus, in terms of Laramie Tunsil, in terms of Kenyon Green, are those guys, you know, and I, I worry for Justin Britt. I do, I'm not convinced at all, but I think, you know, I'd rather have J, uh, Jimmy Morrison in there if, if, if you're going to see what's, you know, for future years. But that's maybe a part that, maybe, of the team maybe that's that, a train. Maybe, maybe that's a training camp battle to watch, man. Hope so, hope so. <laughs> watch that. I'm, I'm with you. Yeah, and I think you know you'll you'll find very quickly. Oh, we got a structural flaw in the def- in the offensive line to defend your quarterback, and I think you'll have Lovey Smith going back there week three uh, to team he coached the Super Bowl, and you'll have as you said the, the, a correct or a an up to date temperature test of the how the how the quarterbacks are pairing from the same draft class. Now we had a temperature test as well from the network executives um, still not warmed on the Texas football albeit they did give four later kickoffs than we had in previous years only got the one primetime game which everybody gets the mandatory Thursday night one but for the but what they've actually done is maybe opened the door a little bit slightly two later games at the 305 slate we're going to have the in Vegas and then after the bye and then we're going to host Tennessee before the week nine slate on Thursday night football so and as well as week two against Russell Wilson. So we've got some later kickoffs. So we've not been destined to the midday central time purgatory that we were last year. So it feels like we've taken a small step forward, I think, and maybe that's been recognised by the schedule makers. Uh, maybe, yeah, a little bit. Or, you know, is that by circumstance? I mean, is that more about those opponents than it is than, Perhaps, it, is, yeah, yeah. than it is the Texans themselves? And we, I mean, we'll take it either way that we can get it. You know, um, and I and I do think that this is a, a still again, when I call it a wasteland, I think it's a fine year to not have a lot of national national exposure to the team. Like I'm not, I'm just not one that complains about that that type of thing. Well, the 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 national media is not talking about. Well, you know, it's it, it, to, to them maybe it's not that interesting. Like they're interested in the hot mess when it's a hot mess, right? When you've got sort of the the issue that you need to untangle, but you know, nationally, they're not necessarily trying to watch the entanglement of it all, right? You know, so the the goal is that you know, maybe not record wise, but on tape and maybe through highlights and through moments, you have these moments that make people interested. That you know, that you do play well if you don't win that game, and I would expect you to win that game at home. But even if you don't win that Thursday night football game against Philadelphia that, you know, maybe Davis Mills has a big, has a big night, or maybe Derek Stingley and AJ Brown are like this epic matchup on Thursday night football or Damian Pierce runs for a hundred yards or, you know, like the hope is, and then, and then again, like you mentioned, some of these games are later. And then some of these games are ones that I think, even though not nationally televised, I think that the, the Cleveland, and Dallas back-to-back is interesting because I think there will be reasons to pay attention to that for, like, surface-level storylines because you're like, okay, Deshaun Watson goes back, assuming that he's not suspended and that he's playing. Deshaun, or in healthy. Deshaun Watson goes back to Houston, okay? then the And so people will be interested in that. The very next week, it's Texans versus Dallas, which or Houston versus Dallas, which, you know, I'm not as big of a Houston versus Dallas guy from being from Houston and having family from East Texas and all of that, like I'm, that doesn't really do it for me as much, but it does it for everybody else, right? So that's going to be kind of a big deal, more so locally, but I think that the national media will probably take an opportunity to gravitate toward it a little bit, if for no other reason that it's the cow, that the Cowboys are involved yeah. in their thing every week. So, and then, and then of course, Kansas City's the week after that. Well, that, that's got the potential, I think, to be, you know, if we're on the ropes at that point and we're, you know, six or seven games below 500, then that could be the knockout blow, that three-week stretch, because you've obviously got, in reverse order, week 15, Kansas City at home, the trip up I-45 to Dallas, and then you've obviously got the return of Watson. Now, the week 13 one, obviously, that was shunned by the... By the networks, obviously, just want to give it a body swerve in terms of the optics, in terms of the storylines. They don't know where that will be, assuming it's post-suspension. But what do you think that game has got the potential to be like in the stadium that day? What do you think it's going to be like? Is it going to be vitriol or is it going to be, I know, a kind of classic pro? Because if this was a college game and it was a transfer, you know, he'd hear it. Is it going to be like that, do you think? Or is it going to be a bit more kind of... 
country club kind of feel? Because I always think when you look around the stands at times, Brandon, or you see a lot of people that kind of comment outwardly on kind of platforms and stuff, a lot of these people aren't the ones that actually go to the games. If you actually look at the demographic in the stand with the price of the tickets, with the t- the, probably an older kind of uh, um, demographic, if you like, probably less likely types that are going to drink 12 Bud Lights and and, <laughs> and scream something at number four on the other side. You know, so th- th- there is, obviously there is a mix of those, um, but like... I, I don't get the sense. I mean, I may be wrong, and it may be, it may be uh, fire raining down from 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 the three hundred level. I don't know. But what do you think that day is going to be like? Because it's got the potential to be a blowout on paper in terms of their talent levels if they're rocking at that stage, depending on the suspension. But yeah, I've had different premonitions about that one of the return. I, I don't know if people want to store up their jerseys. I've got one with a tag on it. Maybe we could throw it over, throw it overboard onto the uh, onto the sideline for somebody to pick up. You know, but I, I don't know which way it will go. Yeah, I, I think it's got the potential to be ugly on a number of levels. Like, it, it'll be interesting to follow and watch the Deshaun Watson reception throughout the season leading up to that moment. Because I, I think in some ways that'll inform a little bit of what you can expect. Because you got to keep in mind, I feel like every time he goes on the road, there will be some sort of group. And it could be football fans and it could be non-football fans, right? People who don't even care about whatever game it is that particular day that just don't want this dude in their city uh, playing football, you know, for, you know, for the, for the, you know, obvious reasons for off the, off the field and what's going on there. So like, I, and I don't, I don't know, I'm just, I'm not predicting protests, but I, I do think that that's a play, something that we got to consider, like, there's a possibility that everywhere he goes, there will be a group that will protest the games. Now, in Houston, <laughs> you know, where like the, the scene of the alleged, I don't want to call it crime because he wasn't, he hasn't even been indicted for, the, for anything. But the scene of the alleged of- offenses that, that are brought up in these lawsuits, you know, I, I think for a, a number of reasons, you'll have football fans that will resent Deshaun Watson for quitting on the team, forcing a trade not long after he signed an extension. As soon as things got, like the moment things got hard for the team, he basically decided to, that he didn't want to be a part of it. And, and that's, that's an oversimplified uh, uh, way to, to, to describe it. But I think that's going to be the fan sentiment, the feeling, right? Like, never mind if he was validated in it and if he was right to feel that way and all of that. So I think it's going to be ugly. I think it's got potential to, to, to be ugly. I'm hoping it's just booze, but I, th- <laughs> I think you're going to have to monitor the signs that are out there. You know, there have been, and, and I'm actually here for this because I'm, I'm here for this level of petty, but there have been like discussions of if there should be like small towels passed around, if not, not from the stadium, because maybe that would be a little too distasteful. But if somebody took it upon themselves to like make sure that there was a lot of towels white you know small towels to to wave around which i i think i think would be petty and, and funny in a in a standpoint of you know trying to make fun of deshaun but it also is a little distasteful for the person who said something bad happened to them right so like and so i don't want to i i would hate to get that confused of making fun of the wrong thing or making fun of the wrong person and intent to be confused, but I think it's got potential for all of that type of color and energy of, hey, we're going to boo Deshaun. We're going to make jokes about his sexual habits uh, at the very least. Uh, we're going to protest. We're going to protest him for the allegations. Like, I think you're going to have a mix of discontent and resentment for Deshaun Watson and then, or and just out, probably just outright, uh, you know, dislike to some degree if you, you know, if you buy into the the allegations, and and, and I think all of that's in play. I think you also have a small minority, because I've heard from these people who still believe in Deshaun Watson and, and and wish he was still here. So so I think that you'll hear some cheers too, some somewhere, but it'll be overwhelmed by people that are upset with him for a variety of reasons that I just described. Yeah, I mean, I hope it. I hope they. I hope they show the discontent and the the, the fact that he turned his back on a city and a team that gave him everything. Um, I hope that's clear at, at the very least. Looking when he goes twenty twenty one zero up in the first, you know, 
30 minutes of football or what have you, then, you know, it's uh, it's probably going to wane and people will take their frustrations out on the team or elsewhere or they'll leave, you know. But interesting point in the schedule. Now, I think you've got a real tough, as we said, start with the bye. Um, and, the, and then coming out of the bye, you've potentially got a run after that Philadelphia game on prime time where you've got a trip to New York, you host host the, uh, the Washington football team or the commanders, whatever the hell they call themselves now, and then you go to Miami. And I think any team in this in this league, Brandon, can win five or six games. And if the Texans are going to rack up wins, a lot of people hope, then I think probably with New York, Washington, Miami, Philly, Tennessee at home. I think that's the kind of stretch of games where you want to see them rack up wins because, as you said, you've got the three hardest games coming up, you know, from 13 uh, to 15, and then you finish off the season with three divisional opponents, um, which is the first time for a long time they've done that. So I think there's a key stretch in there that, regardless how you get in and out of the bye, if you're still building, still piecing this together, young guys learning, there's a stretch there from about week nine to, to week 12 before that Deshaun game that the Texans can put some credibility, put some progress on their record and hopefully by doing that they're developing players and getting so I think that's the point there I think that you see us as, as uh, hopefully be the kind of bit of the season where certainly it seemed like it would be the most opportunity to go and uh, develop and win games yeah so I, th- I think the only discrepancy here on how we view this is maybe like what is Miami I think that's well, that's a, yeah. I, I think yeah. that's a, a a pertinent question an interesting question period Miami's got a new coach and trying to figure out what's going on with Tua, all of that. But as it pertains to the Texans, and and hopefully by then we'll have a better sense for it because that's later on in the season. But to me, that's that's the breakup or the possible line of demarcation, if you will, between the the quote unquote winnable. I'm not going to call it an easy stretch for the Texans. That yeah, would be ridiculous. Winnable, yeah. But the winnable stretch versus what my guy Lopez, when we were on on Friday, I hosted hosted with Lopez on Friday, and he called it. And I think he started with Miami like the stretch of death or something, something to that effect where these were the games. And it goes beyond, I think, what, what you have. It's got he starts at Miami and goes Miami, Cleveland, Dallas, Kansas City and Tennessee as the, the stretch of death. OK, as the games that he doesn't feel like are all that winnable for the Texans. And I kind of when he puts it that way, kind of aside with him on that those are games that i'd be surprised if they won any of them so back to the original point of philadelphia that 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 nfc east boy all right save for dallas that nfc east stretch like you're hoping that you go at least that you go at least two and one you know get a winning record in those three games maybe win them all but that to me would be the most disappointing part from just from a win-loss standpoint that would be the most disappointing section of the schedule if they didn't win more than one of those games between Philly and then you got the 10 days rest, I believe, before you play the Giants, you know, because uh, you had that because the Philly games Thursday night. So you get the extra rest before you go on the road and play the Giants. And you got Washington at home led by the, the Washington. You said, what What are they calling them? They're the fighting commander. Carson. The Washington, w- the Washington Wentz is now. They're yeah. the fighting Carson <laughs> Wentz's now, man. Yeah. So, if you know, kind of hoping that you can beat the fighting Carson Wentz's and the, the Daniel Jones, possibly Daniel Jones led or, or Tyrod Taylor led New York Giants, you know, and and, you know, uh, Jalen Hurts coming home. Much love to Jalen Hurts. I got a lot of respect for Jalen Hurts and, you know, don't think he's that great of a quarterback, but really want him to be uh, when he's not playing the Texans because he's a Houston area guy and represents. So that'll be a kind of a cool little homecoming thing, rooting for the hometown guy to lose that night. Uh, and, but but I I would like to you would you would hope as a Texans fan that Lovey Smith's defense. Okay, if you want to you want to have optimism, want to believe in Lovey Smith's defense that they can have their best stretch possibly when they're playing back-to-back-to-back Jalen Hurts, presumably Jalen Hurts, Daniel Jones, and Carson Wentz on his third team in three years. Yeah, and I think it's funny because Wentz tore us apart last year and I think I heard a phrase Mm -hmm. of, if you can reduce the blowouts, that would be success this year. We can't rely on Jacksonville 
to prop up our win total as we have done of those four wins half of those have been jacks for the last two years so you know there is a number of unknowns I include Washington in that to a degree with that defence you got to include the Bears to a degree you got to include the Raiders to a degree and I'm not quite sure what Tennessee will be this year but a lot to be decided uh, on this schedule um, a lot to be decided um, before we head out here any final words Brandon? Oh, man, I'm just excited. I'm, I'm ready for training camp. I think that they did a really good job in this draft, at least in compiling some players, you know, especially at the top. And watch out for John Mechie, man. Watch out for John Mechie. I think that's a guy who, again, does not stand out physically, but just does some things on the football field that I really like that sort of, I mean, it's tangible and intangible. Like, you can go watch the highlights and watch them at 5'11", 190 pounds, mauling dudes, you know. Um, dudes of comparable size, right? Like, he's not doing that against linebackers. But if it's a DB that's a similar size, like, this guy looks like he's physical enough to, you know, to win. So I really, really like him if he's if he's healthy and I'm and really more so just interested to see how they use him and whether his presence now impacts the offense uh, obviously, aside, uh, along with the schematic change, if it how significant yeah. of an impact that has on the offense. So that's what I'm looking out for, man. Well, that's it. If anything, these 17 games give us some irons in the fire, talent like that to watch and see what they can become. And most importantly, those year two guys and where they are no more important than Davis Mills. But we've got a long off season to talk about it. The schedule is finally set, 18 weeks plus the bye. And we'll probably understand what this team is going to develop and hopefully become in the next couple of years. But Brandon Scott, thank you very much for your time. We'll be back in the next couple of weeks speaking to some people that know these prospects inside out and get a better feel for some of this draft class over the next three or four weeks but thank you again for everybody that's listening if you haven't liked subscribe share give us an email podcasttexans at gmail.com hit us a message on instagram twitter we want to hear from you thanks to all the new listeners last couple of weeks numbers have been great i hope you're enjoying the show but please reach out if you want to hear anything from us and we'll be back again as i said in the next couple of weeks to dig into these college prospects on this year's draft class but thanks again and we'll speak to you next week 